broadcasting under the night sky from the edge of an undisclosed jungle on the Gulf of Mexico. I'm Christopher Garitano, your voice in the night. For the next hour, allow me to be your guide into the bizarre unknown, the fantastic macabre, and together we'll journey to that borderland between fiction and reality, a place beyond all rational explanation. We are now off to the witch. If you're frightened of dying and then you're holding on, you'll see devils tearing your life away. But if you've made your peace, then the devils are really angels freeing you from the earth. It's just a matter of how you look at it, that's all. So don't worry, okay? That was a profound moment from the 1990 motion picture Jacob's Ladder, directed by Adrian Lyne. In the movie, the character of Jacob Singer, played by Tim Robbins, is a Vietnam War veteran who slowly realizes that he and his platoon were covertly and nefariously experimented on as part of a clandestine government operation to make a more violent and efficient killer. The remainder of the movie is Singer coming to the realization of not only the atrocities implemented on he and his fellow soldiers, but the circumstances of his own death. Tonight's guest is someone who continues to survive a government experiment not unlike the one portrayed in Jacob's Ladder. We'll hear his story after this commercial break. After these messages, we'll be right back. You are listening to the Off to the Witch podcast, where we explore that bizarre borderline between fiction and reality and all subjects arcane. Journey over to my YouTube channel and subscribe now at youtube.com slash at off to the witch for a variety of extras and special features, including the off to the witch mini docs with further insights on many of the latest episodes, as well as previews and behind the scenes of my forthcoming investigative series off to the witch presents, as well as the anniversary edition of my motion picture documentary Montauk Chronicles and follow us on social media. All links are available at linktree.com slash garitano7, G-A-R-E-T-A-N-O-7. And stay tuned for more Off to the Witch. Jacob Singer goes to work. What's wrong? Uh, it's one of those days. And every day he wonders what is happening to him. Maybe it's the pressure, Jake. They're like demons, Jess. They weren't human. What were they, Jake? Let me look at your hand. You have a very strange line. See, according to this, you're already dead. <laughs> wrong, Jake. They're coming after me. I don't know who they are or what they are, but they're gonna get me, and I'm scared, Jake. I've seen them, too. Maybe the demons are real. He's running 106 feet. This is barbaric. 
I can get rid of the demons. Who are you? I can block the ladder. Where are you taking me? Where am I? Where do you want to go? Home. This is your home. You're dead. I'm not dead. What are you then? I'm alive. I'm your host, Christopher Garitano, and tonight's guest, Abe Sias, is haunted by bizarre visions and perceptions which he believes is the result of a covert government experiment that occurred when he was in the U.S. Army. The story you're about to hear might shock you, as it involves the graphic and terrifying effects of a horrific experiment on the human body, mind, and soul. So here's my interview with Abe Sias. I was born in Rimville, Texas, and uh, February 2nd, 1969. I'm in the Rio Grande Valley. Uh, that's where I was raised and born. When I graduated, uh, I, I joined the military right after that. Uh, I was stationed, uh, my first, my basic training was in Fort Knox, Kentucky where I went uh, as to be a 19 kilo, which is a M1 Abrams tanker. And from there, I went to Germany, which was my first duty station in Erlangen, Germany. I was stationed in Germany from 1989 uh, uh, till right after Operation Digital Storm uh 1990 uh we left uh we got deactivated so i had to come back to the states okay so when you first entered the military at what point did you realize there was something strange going on in terms of maybe how they were leading you or that you may be part of some kind of operation or experiment that you weren't fully aware of there was a lot of things uh happening to me while I was within the military, uh, especially like in basic training, you know, when you're part of a team, you think that everybody's united as one just because you're wearing the same uniform, but not necessarily. Basic training was kind of kind of rough for me. Not that I wasn't ready for the training, is that the things that happen within basic training uh, a lot of fighting, actually, where uh, I had to fight people, and I was fighting people in numbers within within basic training. Where I'll give you an example: uh, I was taking a shower at the shower point, and you only limited to take certain amount of a uh, certain amount of time to take a shower. You had to take a shower fast. I had three guys tried to jump me in there, and I had to fight three guys just to come out of the shower. So it's like, I started noticing a trend of violence, you know, uh, 
ever since basic training where I had to fight people that I, I mean, that I didn't want to fight, but I had no choice because when they get in your face or they come at you with a broom or they're swinging, throwing punches at you, you've got to defend yourself. So there was a lot of fighting in basic training for me. And it, it seemed kind of odd to me. There was times that there was one time I was asleep. And when I woke up, somebody was punching me in the face. And as I got the person that was punching me in the face and uh, I, was, I put him in a hold, the lights turned on and it was the drill sergeant. And he said, what is going on here? So I felt that if, like if the drill sergeant put up that person to do that, you know, so it's kind of like I started feeling uh, that I had to wash my back. You know, it's kind of like my, I couldn't really sleep anymore. And I had to keep my guards up. Do you feel like the fights and the attacks may have been part of, you know, at least a small part of kind of a psychological conditioning, physical conditioning that's required? Do you think it was organized? I believe so. I believe so because I just didn't fight uh, soldiers that were there. There was zero sergeants that I got into fights with. Uh, there was one where we were doing our combat course where they show you how to flip somebody. I remember when I landed on the ground, the drill sergeant came running and tried to kick me in the face while I was down. And they didn't know that I, I knew martial arts and I, 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 I trained myself. Before I joined the military, uh, I would run a lot. And through, through the running and I, I had training in the martial arts, I knew how to defend myself. So when he tried to kick me in the face with his boot, I blocked the shot. Uh, I crossed my, my, I put a like a cross, like a face my wrist side to side, and formed the cross. And I grabbed him from the boot, and I pulled him down. And I got on him real fast. And next thing you know, all the Drew Hodges came, uh, and they were all on me. So it's kind of like I felt that I don't think they were trying to make me strong in any kind of way, but it was more of, they were literally trying to, to hurt me. You know, that's how I felt. So, I mean, for anybody, you know, anybody that that's a human being, if you feel threatened in any kind of way, you're going to defend yourself, right? It doesn't matter who it is or uh, where it is, but you're going to defend yourself if somebody's coming, coming at you in a threatful manner. And that's what happened to me there in basic training, you know? So yes, I started noticing a trend where I was being targeted in that manner. Why the reason I was targeted in that way, I do not know, but they kept, they kept on coming at me. And that continued, that kind of trending continued through, throughout my career in the military. Do you think, I mean, that was part of a way to psychologically break you down, that it was, and, you, and I had asked you before, and you said you do believe so, that it was organized in, in, in part of this, and part of all of this, and where this eventually goes is even more elaborate. But do you think that was a lot of the psychological conditioning? That's my first question. And was this also happening to other, other people? I, I don't know if it's happening to other people, uh, but... Like I said, there were so many people coming at me that I felt that somebody was behind it, sending these people my way. Uh, 
to targeting me, you know. So I had to fight individuals that I fought a a person that was a football player in the, in high school that was supposed to be real good, you know. I had to choke him out and put him to sleep. Then I fought uh, a person that was a champion for wrestling in, from Kentucky, uh, and he he. He came at me and I choked him out too, put him to sleep. Uh, but I believe that they were sending them my way to, to try to hurt me. Maybe I don't know why, but it's kind of like I guess in the when they they take you to the base, they want you to break down. They they want you to because uh, the drill sergeants are supposed to be superior than you, so they want you. They want to break you for. Uh, how should I say? They want to break you as a human being, so they can have more control over you. If that makes sense, it does. And obviously, this went in phases. So you went through this in basic training. Yes. What was the next stage that you really noticed was quite different, and um, you had you had questions and curiosity about it, and and you know what was the next phase of this? Well, what they did is after basic training. Everybody got orders except me to go to go anywhere. So I had to wait for for two weeks till my orders came through. So they finally sent me to Erlangen, Germany. You know, and what was weird about it is like almost every when I went to Germany, my all the platoons that had a platoon sergeant, all of them were extra sergeants, right? So they sent me to this, uh, my, my platoon sergeant was a drill sergeant. And right off the bat, it's, it seemed like the trend continued from basic training to there in which uh, this individual didn't like me. Uh, he, he, he would tell me he don't, he don't like my kind. You know, it was a African-American, you know, uh, and he told me he didn't like my kind. So, and he called me a, went back so out of defending myself i said well i don't like you kind of either even though i didn't have no hatred towards me towards them you know i just had to defend myself so after that they started placing me in bandingo fights what they would do is they'll make me work all day doing kp i did kp for about two months the first two months I was there, like, I felt like I was being punished, you know? So I was working from 5.30 in the morning to 6.30 in the, after, in the evening doing KP. And, I, you know, I wasn't even doing my, my job as a tanker. So when I would walk back to the billets after I, I finished working, drill sergeants be waiting for me, ex-drill sergeants, and they would say, you're not done yet. Come over here with us. Take off your your PDU top. So they tell me to stretch out, right? Tell me to stretch out. Next thing you know, I see a lot of people, like thirty people, coming my way, and they have a person without a shirt in the middle, and they tell me that I had a fight. They say, and the uh, the drill sergeant will tell me, or the extra sergeant, which will tell me I had a fight. That if I didn't fight, that they were going to give me an Article Fifteen. So I was forced to fight what they call the Negro fights. Uh, back then, uh, 
So I had to defend myself without me wanting to fight. It was illegal fighting, right? So the first person that bought to me, it was no different than the people I would do in basic training. I beat them up real fast. So it's kind of like this fights that I did lasted for about two months. They were making me fight a person every day from Monday to Friday. You know, when I hear about see the UFC and how the people take breaks, well, I wasn't taking no breaks. <laughs> they made me fight from Monday through Friday. And I was, and the first week that I fought like that, you know, I defeated every opponent. I said to myself, what do I have to do? If I'm going to, they're going to continue to do this to me, what do I have to do in order for me to be able to survive these fights? Because I was already tired fighting a week. And I said, you know what? You already know what to do. Knock them out as fast as you can. And it'll save you. It will save my energy. So they continue to bring people. You know, I fought people that were from the Bronx, that were Crips, that were Latin. Before the military, they, they were in some kind of gangs. You know, some were Black Panthers. I fought all these people. They're, they're bringing them away. And I started knocking them out. You know, I knew all the pressure points. I knew pressure points. I knew everything. So I would just knock, uh, knock them out as fast as I could. So I had like a, uh, I was undefeated, you know, and the, the field sergeant would tell me, all we want you to do is let somebody beat you up. That's all we want. We, I come, you just don't let somebody just beat you up. And I will tell them, that's not how I was raised. I was raised, I was raised to defend myself and fight. You know, that's why I joined the military. I figured that, you know, I was going to be able to do good for the military. So there I am fighting the own, my own people that are dressed in uniform. Uh, what happened is after 40 fights, there was this guy, those are, he would bench press 600 pounds at the gym. Well, that was my final opponent. He was like 6'8", six, 6'9", six, could bench press over 600 pounds. Big old African-American. I only weighed, at that time, I was only weighing 155 pounds. They brought this big guy that weighed three times more than me. He looked at me and he said, they told everybody that was there because they were waiting. You know, it was the same routine. They would do the KP. And they pulled me to the side. They brought this big guy. And he looked at me. And he said, uh, this is a guy that you're all afraid of? That's been beating, beating my kind? Is this a guy right here? He looked at me and he said this to me. He said, when I, when I grab a hold of you, I'm going to break your back. And you're going to be paralyzed. For the rest of your life that's what he said i wasn't saying nothing to him what i was doing is, is studying him seeing his posture seeing where he might have an injury which the way he stood it looked like he had an injury on the right side no i was studying my opponents uh that, that i had to face and i had to find a strategy to overcome them you know kind of like you could say like david and goliath uh so i was looking at this guy and uh to get fuel 
because he was so bigger. You know, he already said what he was going to do to me. Uh, I said to him, did you say something about my mother? And he said, F your mother. So that gave me the, the, the energy to fight him. You know, I, I was going to have to fight him regardless. So I just stay focused on, on what I had to do. Uh, what they didn't know is that I would train. I would go running 20 miles a day or train my senses with blindfolds in the woods, in the darkness, to, to train my senses to be a king or to be first of nature for whether it's a spiritual battle or physical battle. They didn't know that, but I knew the training that I would do. So they brought this big guy. He threw a couple of punches at me, and I noticed he was too slow. And I, do I dodged his punches, and I would hit him in the back of the head. Every time he threw a punch, I hit him in the back of the head, slap him just to get him upset, you know. So he would get mad. He would come throwing power punches, and I'd dodge his punches because he was too slow. And I hit him in the back of the head and slap him. So after throwing so many power punches, I could see the rise and fall of his chest. And that's when my opening was. Uh, I let him throw a punch towards my head. And he, he threw with everything he had. And I just took a step back. He missed me. And I hit his elbow. And his body twisted because our train was traced. <laughs> With the movable object so when i hit i had power so his body spun and i uh, hit him one time with my uh phalange when you bend your fingers the when you bend your fingers like you're doing a paw i hit him right in the temple area one punch one punch one fast hard punch everybody is looking at this one punch Next thing you know, he's just standing there, and within two seconds, his whole six foot nine, whatever how much he weighed, just fell to the ground because I cut the circulation to his brain. Then I got on top of him with my knees on his shoulders, and I also was going to do some work on him uh, because, you know, what he said about my mother. But they pulled me off of him, and they said to leave him alone. And all the people there, they were afraid of me. They're like, you're you're crazy. I mean, they were ones making me, forcing me to fight. So after that, what they didn't know is that all these people I have fought and I have become friends with them. That I will, you know, every after every fight, I will go up to that individual because I would run into them at the dining facilities. And I said, look, I'd rather be your friend and your enemy. That's not right. Not right for their they're doing to us because I figured they were doing the same thing to them. Right. So I finally got some people gathered up some people and I want to go talk to my first sergeant because they would always threaten me. They, they would tell me if I tell anybody they were going to take my rank. Right. So I finally told the first sergeant, got people to come from the fights that I've got in and that I fought. And he, he was an extra sergeant too. So I guess he had to play the part, right? And uh, he, he told them, he told, got all those those people that were involved that were making me fight those horse fights to to stop, or else he was going to derank them. And that was the end of those Mandingo fights. But it still continued. I, was, I still was being targeted, not in fights, but 
they were following me around wherever I went. Uh, when, when I went up there to Operation Desert Storm, oh man, imagine going to war and you know you're going to face the enemy, you know, which was at that time we were going to face the Medina Republican Guard. And you already know you're going to be in for a fight. But then you have to worry about the enemy within the ranks that are coming at you because you didn't obey an order of letting somebody beat you up. So I really didn't get that much sleep while I was out there. So, okay. Now you're in Germany and these fights continue. My question is now you went to desert storm and, and, is that where you were stationed after Germany? I went there because of combat, uh, because of the war. I went with my unit. Yeah, okay. I, w- I went with my unit where the they had the drill sergeants who were forcing that went with them to combat. I'm totally captivated by your story, and I want to know when what was that transition between Germany and heading to Desert Storm, and did anything happen during that time? Um, Anything strange that you might feel you were because you did mention you're continuing to be watched, they were provoking these fights. Was there anything else upon that transition from Germany to Desert Storm? And then did anything happen in Desert Storm that is questionable that you remember that that could have been part of an experiment? I got like I said, I felt like they were sending people more away, you know. I don't know if they were being controlled or they were they were following orders. Uh, before we were going to take our equipment to the railhead, which are the tanks, uh, I was showing uh, some of my fellow soldiers some some uh, defense moves, how to defend themselves because they were scared, you know, and they wanted to learn something besides what they already knew. So I was showing them some, some moves, you know, how to block and just in case somebody came at them, what to do, you know. And there was this African-American that was... Uh, a crew member of that drill sergeant that that didn't like me, and he took up his. He knew he was a boxer, and uh, he said that that he was gonna show me that he I wasn't bad at all. That he was gonna show me right. So I, I told him, look, I don't I don't want to fight you. I'm just showing them some moves. I said I don't care about that. I'm just gonna beat you up right now. So he took up his top, and he came at me. So. Just like any other fight, you know, I had to defend myself. I let him get a couple of hits in just to think, for him to think that he had the upper hand. But then I started blocking all his shots. And I did the same thing. But to him, because he was always messing with me, when he, he swung at me, I took a step back. I hit him, and I put him on a, on a, on a choke hold. And I didn't let go. <laughs> I didn't let go on him. And I just locked the hold strong. And it took like 15, 20 people to get me off of him. Uh, when I let go of the show cold, all I remember is they had broken two by fours, pallets that tried to throw water on me just to break me off of him. Uh, but this guy, he was black and blue. And everybody thought that he was dead. But luckily, not he, he survived. But 
after that, he never messed with me again. Well, he didn't try to fight me again, but he did mess with me later on when I was out there in Operation Desert Storm. But what I noticed when we were taking the tanks to the railheads to Bermahaven, I seen a, a guy get electrocuted. This is like two weeks out before we went on our out, out there to the Operation Desert Storm. Uh, on the railhead, there was this guy standing on top of a... Uh, in Germany, the the their, the wires up on top are, are live wires. So they gave you a briefing uh, to wear Kevlar's and not to be careful not to touch those lines because it'll electrocute you. When we're getting up to Bermahaven, we it was snowing a little bit, and uh, I seen uh, a current of electricity go from one line to the other, and there was a, a guy standing on a Bradley, which is which is a a vehicle for like the infantry or scouts. And uh, it it went from one line to the other and I seen it hit him on top of his pilot cap because he didn't have his cavalry on. So, you know, as soldiers, we, we were ordered to put a a uh, dog tag on your boots. And, you know, you of course you got, got your dog tags around your neck. And just in case something happens to you, they'll be able to ID you through your, your dog tags. Well, I believe that the dog tags attracted the current and it, it hit him on top of the head and he fell off the, the railhead off his Bradley. So I stopped the, told the train to, I hit the thing so the, the train conductor could stop the train. So he stopped the train and we got off and we ran towards him and he was just flopping on the ground. Uh, he was flopping on the ground and, uh, uh, you know, I was a combat lifesaver, so I checked for a pulse. He had a pulse. I checked uh, for a heart. You know, uh, if he was breathing, I could feel air coming out of his nose. But he just kept on, uh, how should I say, like vibrating, like trembling, tremble, like a tremble, like a tremble. You know, so uh, I was I was searching to see where the, the entry point was, which was on top of the head where the, the current hit him. And then I started... Uh, touching his videos, those videos were the the green, black, and brown back in the day, the camouflage ones. And as I was touching his videos, they were just crumbling where they had gotten fried by the current, you know, so it, it just started crumbling. And I, I seen where the the dog tag on his chest was, they had rubber on it, it was melted on his chest, and I kept on touching his leg, and I found where the, the exit of the current went through was through the dog tag on his left boot where it, it went out. Wow. So we, we, we were there and finally the, about an ambulance, we, we picked him up and he was sliding off our hands. So, but we picked him up and we took him and, and they took him away. So like about a week, two weeks later, but within that week, they, you know, they, they took us information and they, they wanted a, you know, it was me and my friend, David, or his last name was Gobby where we were the ones that helped them. So they, they were trying to recognize, recognize us within the company that we helped out somebody. But uh, this, this, this gentleman, uh, his name was POC Mosaic. Uh, you know, I remember his name. I mean, it was a matter of life or death, right, situation. So I remember his name because I could see his dog tag. I never, you, know, you never forget when you experience something like that. Or a moment like that, or the people who are around you, or wherever the the casualty is, 
believe uh, they said that he had burned every bone in his body. So they had him like in a, in a vegetable, like a machine. The parents came. They they said a thank you for trying to help him out. But then, uh, you know, they had to disconnect the machine because he had all his bone structure had burned in his body. Then I witnessed a lot of the more of that uh, at, while I stayed there at Bomberhaven, uploading the, the the tanks on the on the sh on the naval ships, the cargo ships. Uh, I seen a, a female standing on top of the deck. She was taking pictures up there by the edge of the of the naval ship, and she had M16 strapped on her shoulders. Next, you know, a gust of wind hits her, and she falls into the bay. And she never came back up, you know, she passed away. So it's like, I'm starting to witness all these things happening in this manner that people are dying. And then I said, well, I got to really stay prepared, you know, for what was to come. Did you feel at that point in time, number one, did you feel obviously vulnerable to some, some kind of elements, especially dangers, but did you feel... Or did it occur to you at that time that perhaps, you know, the organization or a deeper part of the military might be, um, might be guiding you into something, something more than what you were told? Well, I've had, well, I always had a spirit uh, gift. Uh, I remember before that, uh, me and my lieutenant, I was in a lieutenant's tank, uh, and we was uh, ev evaluating the scouts. and. We were in uh, Homes, um, you see, in Grafenvir. We was evaluating uh, the scouts in uh, Grafenvir, Germany. It was one of the the training grounds where we would go. And I had fallen asleep, and and all the lieutenants there were their drivers because I was their, uh, my lieutenant's driver, you know. So I was asleep, and I remember all these lieutenants were they wake me up out of my sleep. There's a lieutenant, there's a captain, there's a colonel. And they're, they're they're telling me, uh, telling me to tell them what I what I was dreaming about, you know, because they're saying that I was saying fire commands that they never heard of, and that the fire commands I was saying, you know, that that's impossible because I was barely a private, you know, and and I was saying fire commands they never heard of, and they they asked me if I could could uh, describe what the dream was about. And I told him that I could see sand. I could see burning tanks. And uh, and then so was it, is it tanks of ours that are burning? I said, I just see burning tanks. And I do see our tanks, but the tanks that I see, they have a certain uh, emblem on them, uh, on the butt, on the bustle rack. And I was telling what were the emblems, and I gave them a description of my dream. So and this is before even anything surfaced up from Operation Desert Storm or Desert Storm. Not unless they might have known in advance, but they were really freaking out with what I was telling them. Uh, and after that, it's kind of like I noticed a little, they're looking at me a little bit different, you know. It's kind of like uh, I had like a premonition of what was to come. So, But I gave them... The information I gave them, I witnessed that when we were out there in combat. The things that, how I described the signs, how the signs were, they put those signs 
on our on our tanks extra extra symbols within within the tanks so we'll be able to identify friendly from friendly from enemy the things i described in my dream uh that happened now were you taken away at any point during that operation because they noticed that you were you had these premonitions or for other reasons were you do you recall being brought into any place where you got injections where anything kind of out of the ordinary was happening to you well, there was other events that happened. Uh, well, the, the the they all took us, took all of us to a location where we all took shots. You know, we had to take shots. That was before we went out there. What they, what kind of shots they gave us, I do not know. Uh, but they gave us uh, several shots before we went out there to combat. Did you suspect that any other? Did they never told you what the shots were? No, uh, we were just ordered to take them, not to ask any questions, just to take them. They, they never gave us, you know, when you're in the military, uh, I guess you could be like a guinea, guinea pig. Uh, you know, you got to follow orders. You know, th- that's the only reason I fought all those bandigo fights, because I was following orders. You know, those those, those individuals that were, com- that were in uniform, so I was following the orders. So there was a series of shots that you were given. You went through all this stuff. And did anything else happen in Desert Storm before you came back and other things started to occur? Yes. Well, the same things that uh, that happened to me in Germany uh, happened in. Uh, well, we got hit by a Scud missile in Tent City. In Tent City, we got hit by Scud. The only reason I know it was a uh, which is a Scud. When they drop Scud, they drop chemicals, right? So you, if you hear uh, horn honking or banging of metal, that means that it's a chemical attack or we're being hit by by chemicals. So we know we were prepared. We had them up here on, put on my mask, you know, uh, put on my mask, and I went straight to the tank. And when I tried to get on top of the tank, uh, it was real slimy. So I kind of like slid off the tank. So I, I grabbed my, there was, a, it's called an M256 kit, which it'll register if you dap it on the, on the goo. Or whatever, any kind of anything that feels like a chemical, and you do the test, it'll let you know what kind of chemical uh, it is. You know whether it's a a nerve agent, a blister agent, or a blood agent. So when I did that test, it registered for as a blood agent, which they use that in combat. It affects your blood, in which your blood becomes coagulated orange blood clots in which it goes the blood clots attack your main organs where they go to your heart to your brain uh the two m256 kits uh and both of them came out positive for a blood agent so next thing you know my company commander comes and he tells me that i need to take up a mask because there was a shot or there was a pill that we were taking it was a nerve agent pill Supposedly, that's what they said, that it was a pill that we were taking uh, that was going to help us from help us from getting affected by any kind of blood agent. But I never took the pill. I took one pill only, and I was forced to take it. The first sergeant made that he had a flashlight. Make sure you took the first pill. The side effects of that pill was high fevers, bliss, uh, like some kind of blisters, uh, like red blisters 
deformed, like like miss, missiles on your body. And I only took one and diarrhea. Those were the side effects of that medicine. That uh, that's why I only took one pill. They would give you a a tablet for a, every day out of the month. You know, monthly dosage, like for every day. I would just throw mine in the sand. You know, but I took only I took the first one, so the first sergeant could know. I drank it like a like a champ, like he, so the first sergeant could think that I'm taking them, but I wasn't taking them. Uh, so they made me take up my mask out there and I wasn't on taking no medicines of, of those pills that they're talking about. So I took it off and they used me as a, as a, like a guinea pig, right? I took it off and I just went back to the, to the bill, uh, to the tent. I was upset because it forced me to take up my mask and then I just wiped my face, you know, I, I decontaminated my face with uh, alcohol, uh, little alcohol uh, pad that comes, uh, it's part of the decontamination, right? So decontaminated my face, my mask, and then I put my mask on and fell asleep with it on because I knew that there was a blood agent out there and they confiscated my my M256 kits. And so you felt right there, there was some weird stuff going on. You weren't being told the full truth. And oh, that's why yeah. It- yeah. We, we wasn't being told uh, the whole truth. It's kind of like... Uh, one of the other things that happened, uh, I was on my tank. Like I said, I didn't trust nobody. So I was on my tank, and I was sleeping on my tank. Well, everybody else was sleeping in tents. This before we even went out in combat, and some individuals came, some African-Americans, you know, uh, came. They told me, hey, we got a, a cop for you in the tent. You know, it's nice and warm in there because in the desert, it gets real cold at nighttime. So it's nice and warm in the tent. Come on, come, come over here with us. So this late at night, so I went in there, but I didn't feel, I felt something was wrong. You know, I always follow my senses. So why are these guys being so nice to me when I've been, all I've been doing is fighting them all this time, right? So I'm, I'm, uh, I put my, my sleeping bag, I put, what I did is I put my foam pad, there's a foam pad where you do exercise, I put it underneath the cot. and I filled up the sleeping bag with dirty clothes and I put my shelter half on the cot draping over. So I went underneath the cot to sleep on the foam pad. So as I was trying to sleep, I still, like I said, I would hardly get into sleep because I didn't trust nobody. Next thing you know, I hear boots running inside the tent and I hear and I'm seeing holes going through through the, the cot. And I'm looking. See, what people don't understand is M16s on the tanks. We had, uh, what do you call them? Saber, uh, sabers? Or that you can hook them up to the end of uh, the M16. They're like a knife. And you can attach it to that. Uh, but we, we carried it. On her, on her gear. So that's like for when you run out of ammo and there's no choice but to fight with a knife. Right, the, the uh, bayonet. Bayonet, there we go, the bayonet. Uh, that's what, that was, they were making, they were, they came in there and then when I looked, 
when they were running out of the tent, it was the same guys that told me to go sleep there. So I, I had my, my tent, I had my, my, my cots, my sleeping bag full of holes, and I took it to the company commander. And I showed him, I said, look, this is what happened to me. This was going on. So then these guys come, the ones that did this to me, and they were trying to say to them, to him, that they need, I need, they needed to confiscate my nine millimeter weapon, my personal nine millimeter because I was a dangerous person. And I had already told them what they had tried to do. And they were higher ranked than me. So it's kind of like, this is what the, the captain did. He looked at me and he said, you're going to have to give me your weapon. i got to confiscate it. And I told him, I just told you exactly what happened. You've seen the holes here where they try to kill me. Because those wasn't playing with They're trying to kill me. You see the holes in my cot? my sleeping bag, you trying to confiscate my weapon? I said, if you don't, if you don't give me your weapon by the uh, Geneva law, I have the right to, to kill you for disobeying a lawful order in a combat environment. And I said, okay, sir. And they were laughing. The other guys were laughing. I pull out my, my weapon and then I, I loaded my magazine put it on fire and aimed it right at his head he said well i guess you're my enemy then he said but i'm going to tell you who i just want to know one thing who's go, who wants to go first you you or you and he's like freaking out because i got the gun pointed right at his head this is my company commander you know wow. and, and this to the point of where you know he's still trying to take my weapon and i'm in a combat environment so i'm waiting to see what they're going to do? Who's going to who's going to jump my way so I can take care of business? Company commander says, "Just leave him the fuck alone." They took off real fast, and he took off real fast, and I kept my weapon. I had no choice but to do that. You know, we're sure. supposed to be a team, right? Well, they wasn't treating me like I was part of the team. So there was something really off the whole time. Yes. Now, did this continue to the end of Desert Storm? And then when you got out, what was the next stage of this? Because I, you know, you and I had had a conversation in Texas and yes. things began to get really bizarre. So what was the what was the pathway into that? Well, it, it continued uh, during the war. You know, when we fought, we all fought. So there was something that happened before we went into combat. It's like we already knew uh, there was some there was a chaplain you know, which is non-dominational. And he was he speak, he's trying to give a speech to the, the, the troops that were there to listen to him talk. But when he left, they said they didn't feel nothing spiritually, that, you know, they didn't feel nothing from it, that they were still scared and all this stuff, you know. And I told them, I said, look, I, said, I know there's a way how to overcome this and we all can come out alive. And they're like, what is that? I said, well, as far as I know, through our history, if you place God first, by placing him first, we will we'll come out victorious. And there were some people there that said, well, I'm not, I'm atheist. I don't, and there's some people I don't believe in God and this and that. So well, do you want to live or not? They say, do you want to live? So how about if you don't have to say nothing, but you want to join the prayer? Let's all grab hands and we'll pray. 
So I then led the prayer and I prayed for everybody. And then everybody was feeling like relaxed and safe, you know, and they took off. Next thing you know, that my platoon sergeant came and uh, he asked me, are you afraid to die? I said, look, if it's my time to go, it's my time to go. But since I place God first, it's up to God now. You know, he's going to be the judge of whether it's my time to go or not because he's in play now. And then he started crying and he was saying that he didn't want to die because I guess he was scared. He didn't want to die, you know, he, his children and all this. So I prayed for him also. You know, the person that didn't like me, I prayed for him. So when we're in combat, when we're in combat, I noticed something. In combat, you know, as we were fighting the Medina Republican Guard, you know, uh, we got cl real close to them within 500 meters. There was people coming out of the ground, and there were there wasn't acting like regular soldiers. There was uh, things happening there that was unexplainable. For example, uh, one person that came out of the ground came out. Uh, it was moving like a snake of some sort. He, he stood up. I could see yellow in his eyes, and he literally jumped. Like, I would say, like, about 10 feet on top of the tank. And when he looked at me, he was he had a smile on his face, but his eyes were yellow. To me, it seemed like he was, like, possessed of some sort. He had an AK-47 in his hand because there's no way he can jump 10 feet like that on the moving tank. Uh, and he was looking at my crew. And my crew couldn't see him because... There was a lot of smoke you know how the smoke rises so i could see everything that was going on on the ground because i was low to the ground as a driver because i was a driver so he's got an ak-47 and he's gonna try to shoot my crew up on top and when he looked up to shoot at him i had already my nine mil in my hand i opened up the hatch when he looked down i had to do i did what i had to do you know i shot one round you know, and he, he fell over over the tank. He fell in front of the tank. So as, as the battle continued, I noticed, you know, what people called the Dijen or the Jen flying around the air, jumping from. There was people that had white flags that were trying to give up. And I seen it jumping from person to person. Every person that had a white flag, it would jump to, into one individual they had a white flag. One of the soldiers had a white flag given up. He dropped the flag, picked up a weapon and pointed and he got killed. And then he jumped, you know, I call them DDNs, but over there in that country, they called the Jen. But then he jumped into another soldier and there was a lot of people dying because of that. Because of those works of what the Jen was doing out there or the Jen or their name different different things, but I was able to see this spiritually, you know, um, another thing, uh, after that battle, when we, you know, overcame the enemy, I witnessed how the soldiers were acting differently. Like, uh, they had, there were, there wasn't acting the same. I don't know. Is it because of what of the battle, but it's kind of like they were in a lock mode. One of those modes of, there was a lot of anger, a lot of hatred, they were acting different, like uh, like they were mad, you know. So I witnessed a lot of fights. Uh, 
out there where I've seen six, seven, eight guys go after a lieutenant and they, they were literally beating them up that they had a call uh, support. They, a, a general came in the shopper, took that lieutenant away from the location. It's like people were acting the what was the word triggered or should I say demonized like they were being controlled by something. That's what it felt like to me. They were being controlled by something that wasn't acting themselves. There are those who say that this quiet town holds many secrets. Legend has it that beneath this very tower, a dark force had its eyes set on the children. We were told that what was going on there was for the benefit of humanity. What would you say to the people who say, well, all these children were kidnapped and murdered and you were a part of it. What would you tell them? You I tell did them? approve of it, but there was nothing I could do about it. They wanted a large number of programmed boys to be used for mind control operations. And there are others who say it's still happening to this day. I don't know, I for myself find it a little suspicious that all the evidence has been conveniently destroyed. Let's put it this way. If you're sitting there with 20 guns pointed at you, what are you going to do? Whatever the hell they want! Watch Montauk Chronicles now for free on Tubi, Plex, Roku, and available for download on Amazon and Apple TV. series presents information based in part on theory and conjecture. The producer's purpose is to suggest some possible explanations, but not necessarily the only ones, to the mysteries we will examine. think that something came from do you think it was that you were you and your your fellow soldiers were all at the center of something that they were all targeted also yes i, I believe i believe there was something going on there especially uh when i seen what i seen flying into the individuals you know uh it could have been possibly of what I was told afterwards that that there was a shot that they had given us they had DNA of a shark of what I heard 
the one of the shots we were taking or some of the pills that we were taking had that in the something dealing with a shark right but also i heard of how they were sending a signal during combat one of the things that were playing was music on the radio when we were in combat that was one of the things that they were doing over the over the over the communications of the tank right uh and what i heard what i i heard was that there was a signal being put out through the satellites to trigger something within the soldiers and i believe that's what they might have used on us because when we came back from combat people was not themselves uh, they were, were they were not acting themselves they were way different we can they came back to germany i see them go to the streets of germany they were wrecking cars they were beating up german people no different than how they were acting out there it's kind of like the signal was still on they, they wow. were attack uh, they were attacking innocent bystanders you know way back a few years ago when i was making the show strange world we talked to a gentleman who was from DARPA. This was a very real thing. They were experimenting with different animal DNA to inject into people. That's that's real. So most likely this has been going on for a while and this shark DNA or whatever they were trying to put into you was a very real thing. And the reaction was this kind of, I guess, like determined, you know, to make a better killer out of it. Do you think that's the case? I believe so. I believe so. There was things that happened where some of the soldiers came back and they, they were beating up their wives. There was beating up the children. They, they were triggered, you know, they were, it was still locked, locked on the, on the individuals, you know, where there was a lot of destruction happening. You know, I believe there was some people that might've died uh, when some family members that might've died when they came back from, cause I was, uh, I wasn't, I didn't have a family, but I heard of things like that. I heard of, uh, there was a friend of mine that went uh, that went back home, but he never came back. I don't know what happened to him, but uh, they got a phone call that he was dead, you know, and there was, you know, he survived combat, but he died. He, he went on leave. They, they put us on convalescent leave for about five months after combat. And some people never made it back. They died back home, you know. How they died, I do not know. And so when you got home from this experience, what what happened then? Because I I know it, it was an entirely new odyssey when you got home. What um so after Desert Storm you get back, what was it like for you? Well, it's it was just a, you know, when you see so many before we we uh, answer the question, it's kind of like on my crew, one of my crew members. You know, we were uh, going back to Kuwait City after the war and. There was uh, we stopped to to put oil for in, in a tank, and there was a little boy and a little girl that was coming because they were hungry, and I noticed a change in him. You know where he grabbed a a track bolt, which is uh, that holds the track pads. Uh, he grabbed that and threw it at the little boy and hit him on the head real hard, and which opened him up. You know, and this is after combat, and I was like, I got in there, I put a tourniquet on him to stop the bleeding, you know, and and I was upset, you know, what he did to him. 
there was a little boy and I know the mother of the little boy was in the distance on a standing on a dune on a sand dune so I put a tourniquet on the little boy's head and I went up to to my loader it was my loader and, and I literally hit him and I took his MREs and I gave them to the little boys the little boy and the little girl so they could take it eat you know and he was in a different state of mind uh he, he said that they could have had bombs you know at that time you know that so he didn't want him near the tank, you know, but this is, you know, which is, it's possible that it could have happened, but there was no reason for him to do that with the, how he did that to the little boy. So we had a, a couple of fights, well, another fight afterwards when we went back to Germany because of that. Uh, and we were in the same tank. It was, it was a, a, a one of my tanker, it was my loader, but I spoke to him a couple of years ago and, you know, I just told him, I'm sorry that I did what I had to do, uh, what, what happened that day, but that, uh, I still consider him a, a brother since we fought together in combat and, you know, he said, Hey, don't worry about it. You know, whatever, you know, that's the past, but I went to stats, but yes, uh, life wasn't the same for me after that. Uh, when we came back to the States, when I came back to the States, the trend continued. They kept on putting me in units where there were extra sergeants, you know, extra sergeants, and they would come and treat me the same way the other people were treating me. You know, just uh, put it this way. When I got stationed in Fort Hood, because it, it's kind of like they didn't want to, wanted me to, they didn't want to promote me. So they kept on sending me from company to company to company because they didn't want to promote me, in which I wanted uh, in working in S3, which is the center of operations, you know, and they had a lot of people that were from, from, from overseas, from the units from, from Germany that were there, and they were kicking everybody out of the military. Uh, so when they came up to me, to try to kick, uh, they were trying to get rid of me, there was a extra sergeant named Sergeant First Class Bowser, Brian Bowser, the vouched for me. He said, no, CS is a good soldier. You're not going to do that to him. And he, he defended me, so they put me back to a line unit, in which eventually I made it all the way to sergeant. Just to make it clear for the audience, your military career continued at, well after that. Yes. And there were other things that kept happening. So yes. in the next stage after the war, you're stationed where, and what is? When did you realize there was much more to this? That that actually more was happening to you, and you seriously started to question it. I was stationed. I got stationed in Fort Hood, Texas, and I started noticing activity there. Where, you know, like I said, they were getting rid of a lot of soldiers. They were downsizing the military. Uh, People, uh, I still had this, this drill sergeants, there were extra sergeants coming after me that didn't like me. It's kind of like they stayed in contact with each other. No, that's, that's the government. They know who you are. They know where you're coming from. So through, through counseling statements, right? If somebody writes a bad counseling statement, they know, or somebody say, hey, take care of this guy a certain way. And they send it to the next platoon sergeant, right? They're going to, they're going to target you to, if somebody, they, uh, how should I say, labels you as a bad person, they're going to come at you 
aggressively. And I believe that what was happening to me where there was uh, extra sergeants that were E7s coming after me. I remember when I got promoted, uh, they see E7, it didn't like, it used to be my Bluetooth sergeant in, uh, here in, uh, well, in, on Fort Hood, and he had left to work at, at the, at the division, the first cavalry division. When I got promoted to NCL to E5, I heard a knock on my door like around 1130 at night. And it's him. And I let him in. He closed the door and he told me that they promote anybody nowadays. And then I looked at him and I said, yeah, they do. And then he said that he was there to, to beat me up. All right. He was there to beat me up. I said, well, lock the door behind you. I'll let you take off your, your, your top. We'll go with no rank with no rank and we'll see what happens. He looked at me. He never took off his shirt. He unlocked the door. You know, he didn't even try to lock the door. He opened the door and walked out. But yeah, they, <laughs> they, they kept on coming after me. Uh, it was, that's why my career only lasted 10 years uh, because uh, they didn't want to promote me more than a NCO, you know, and then I started having, of course, from uh, placing my body on the line. I'll give you an example. <laughs> I was, we're doing live gunnery uh, in Clabber Creek, which is four tanks going down range shooting targets, which will look pretty awesome, right? Where all the tanks are shooting. So I'm, we're going down range, hitting the targets. And like I said, I follow my senses and something told me to duck, right? So I was I was a loader at the time, so I went with my instincts and I ducked, and I heard something out there. When I looked up, there were, because when you go down range, you have a green flag when 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 you're not ready, but when you put a red flag, that means you're you're recon one that you're ready to go. That all weapons are locked and loaded, or the flag had three bullet holes in it, where one of the tanks. Uh, the gunner from one of the tanks to our left shot at shot at me. There's no way that you can make a mistake like that. No way at all. He literally tried to kill me. So after that, I confronted him and I, I had it with him. You know, I, I I picked him up, I body slammed him, and I grabbed him from the throat. You know, and I told him, "Who put you? To, who put you up to it? Who put you up to do, to try to take me out?" He wouldn't say nothing to me, but he literally tried to kill me. And I had the flag with the three bullet holes to prove it. There's no way somebody can make a mistake like that. Not with the, the kind of, uh, not with the kind of equipment that we have that we can, we can tell our friends from enemy, you know, he intentionally did that, try to take me out. And looking back in hindsight, what, what do you think this was all about? Why were they? consistently either trying to fight you or eliminate you well brother uh i started noticing other things besides that of people actually coming at me uh what i started witnessing uh i'll give you a, a story i had got in i had you know i had been in an accident in california where i hit my head you know and because of that throughout the years i noticed something around me while i was blacking out passing out uh they had diagnosed me with epilepsy, you know, from the blow to the head that I had in an accident in Fort Orange, California. 
But I wanted to witness out there was uh, when I first got my first seizure, right? That, now, a seizure for anybody that doesn't know is biblically they're saying when you have a seizure, that, that means you're being demonically attacked, right? That's what it means. The form of possession. So I'm up there in, a, in the medical tent. They're saying that the chaplain of Fort Hood is going to come talk to me. So they say the chaplain of Fort Hood is here. There's this gentleman that walks in and he looks at me. And he just smiles at me. And he says, do you believe, believe in demonic possession? And I'm looking at him. And I said, I've heard of things like that. And then he said, has any of your family members ever been demonically attacked? And he starts smiling. And then he says, how about your grandfather? And I didn't say nothing to him, but I knew something happened, something in that nature to my grandfather. But in my mind, I was like, how does he know this? You know, it's something that only I know. So I said, let's pray. He said, let's pray. So he grabbed my hands and we start praying. But the thing is, when he started praying, I don't understand what he's saying. He's not saying nothing in English or Spanish. He's talking a whole different dialect. So when he's talking this different dialect, we're holding hands. I, I start saying the Our Father. When I start saying the Our Father, he tries to let go of my hands. I'm not letting go, and I'm saying the Our Father, and he lets go and takes off. Takes off out of the tent real fast. So I go sit down back in my cot, and it's like, that was a kind of a strange meeting with the chaplain of Fort Hood. You know, that was strange. But what, what would he say those things to me, right? So as I'm sitting there, then I hear the chaplain of Fort Hood is here, which means the chaplain of Fort Hood is the main guy, the main chaplain of Fort Hood. So then this other guy comes in, and he said, he's the main chaplain of Fort Hood. You know, he's like, I said, I told him, the, the main chaplain of Fort Hood already just barely see me. He said, no, I'm the main chaplain of Fort Hood. So it's like he we just talked and he really didn't pray for me. He just said, How you doing? I was telling him I was feeling a little bit better and all that he just walked out. So that's when I started noticing other things. You know, was it for example, was it a a soldier or was it something infiltrating to be a soldier within the ranks? Uh and to me I I would have, to me, my first thoughts of it was it was a demon in disguise as the chaplain because the things that he told me only I knew. Nobody knew. And it was something that happened to, to me. Something that happened to my grandfather when I was like five, six years old. Something that happened to him. That's when I started noticing some weird things within the ranks of the military where those other forces, uh, Demonic forces working within the ranks of the military, or you could say the degen or whatever. But that's when I started really preparing myself when I would go out there because it was, I was facing, I had already faced the physical aspect of things, you know, and you know, when you're trying to figure out why these people are coming after me, then there's whatever demonic being takes form to look like a chaplain. It's not even the, the, the right person to tell you things that only you know. It's kind of like you start, it's like everything starts playing out by itself and the puzzle starts forming. But I believe that the government wants to get the super soldier by any means necessary. And those any, any means necessary, just like Hitler was through Norcromancy and witchcraft, uh, that's the things that he would do.
I believe it's all affiliated in some kind of way or the other in that nature. There are a lot of reasons to believe that, for sure, especially with all of this coming to a head now, right in front of our eyes. You know, everything that's happened to us, even in the last three years, that we can see that, um, you know, I feel like all of these experiments over time obviously haven't ended, number one. Number two, um, that that a lot of them that they prepared for to put upon the people, you know, the populace, even non-military yes. people, right? That yes. I think it's all coming into play now. Now, my question is, you feel ultimately all of this, there's much more to it. And there's actually a spiritual war going on. Yes. Okay. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? About how you feel about it and what you what you truly believe in in terms of you're somebody that's really experienced all of this stuff. Oh yes, uh, because just like the 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 Badingo fights and the 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 all this fighting that I've done throughout my life uh, while I was in the military, it continued in a different manner. I mean, the spiritual side of things. What happened to me in Elms Grove in Colleen, Texas, where Fort Hood bases is after the military where uh, I had moved into this mobile home park and uh, my son was playing on the swing on the, on the sliding swings with with a friend and I'll show him the friend how the park had a park within the park and you had a swimming pool and all this you know and that I like like the area next thing you know uh, I cannot hear my son playing on the swing set so I go looking for him I can't find him nor she can find her daughter. Uh, we go back home to see they're at the house playing video games. They're not there. My sister says she hasn't seen them. So then we go to, back to the park and we're searching everywhere. We can't find them. So they, they start calling the police and they start, the sun's already setting and I'm, I'm looking for them and I, I managed to see the top of my son's head in the woods. Like there's just the hair, a little bit of the hair. And I ran to them, and when I got to them, they were just standing side by side, like in a trance-like state, right? So as they were standing side by side in a trance-like state, I, I, I was trying to get their attention. They wouldn't respond to me for a while, till finally they both responded, and they said this at the same time. Uh, they said that the man in black called them to the woods. So I yelled for my sister and my friend. They came and grabbed him, took him home. You know, I'm a prior military. Uh, I went searching for this man in black, you know, whether it was an African-American African American or a person dressed in black. I went searching all throughout the woods, through the creek, through the highway, and I didn't find nobody that was either dressed in black or a man, a, an African-American, you know. So that's when I the uh, all the other things of the spiritual battle started happening brother you know could it be that they're they still have have a signal up in the air just to try to affect maybe the blow that i had in california you know might have broken something that that wasn't able to lock down the signal on me i don't know to make me you know so many fights that i got into you know i did have some blows to the head uh because uh, like, and uh, after the war, before I came back to, to the States, they sent me to 
I forgot to tell you this, the Cemetery Birch's Garden, the Platissan Birch's Garden, and I got jumped by like 20 people, 20 American soldiers out there. Uh, they they got all, all around me, and they, they hit me in the back of the head. So if there was a signal or, or something on me, you know, from so many blows, it must have broken or something, right? So the signal wouldn't be able to connect to me. Uh, but they had it on lockdown because they came at me. You know, so I feel that I was targeted even then. Uh, it was this happened in Birch's Garden near near Switzerland Alps. There was a it's, it's called Birch's Garden. It was a trip for going to combat. The 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 there was supposed to be a trip for the weekend. All expenses paid. <laughs> yeah, the what the, the, the main expense was me because they tried to take me out. I mean, this would lend to four episodes, and I definitely want to have you back on here, but there's a couple of things I wanted to talk about. That's fine, brother. Uh, okay. And one of the things is, now you had mentioned, because of the, as a result of the experimentation, as a, re- a result of your injuries, you had certain effects. You had to see doctors. And yes. you told me in Texas a couple of stories about that. Can you share that with us if you feel comfortable? Uh, the doc, the the doctors dealing with uh, the the neurologists that I've seen over here. Uh, there was two neurologists diagnosed with epilepsy in the military. But when I come, there was a Air Force doctor when I left the military said I didn't have epilepsy, so they took me off the meds that I was taking when I left the military. So for two years, I was having seizures till I finally got into the system of the VA. When I got into the system of the VA, they got me back on epilepsy medicine. Uh, uh, while they got me back on epilepsy medicine, I was still having some seizures, you know, and they were trying to figure out what kind of doses to give me to try to control it. Uh, but uh, a lot of things started to happen to me. Uh, one of them, I got a blood clot on my left leg when I was like 30. It was 32 years old, uh, but the doctors, I've always had problems with the doctors at the VA facility. It's kind of like any condition I had, they tell me I don't have the condition. You know, like, for example, they'll tell me if it's not a, a duck, doesn't look like a duck or walk like a duck, then it's not the duck. Uh, some of the things that happened to me there on my appointments, when I put a complaint on one of the doctors, I went up. The complaint is up on the fourth floor. So I made a complaint and I was going down on the elevator to go back down to the first lobby. And the elevator would stop like if somebody pushed the button and it would, the elevator would open up. There'll be nobody there. Close. It will go to the next floor. Open up. Nobody there. So when I got down to the first floor, the elevator opened up and, and there was this this, this guy all dressed in black that came and bumped into me and he's looking at me and I'm looking at him and he's dressed all in black. And the way his stance is, you know, since I know about offense and defense, the way he's standing at me, looking at me, that it, it looks like he's charged, going to charge at me. So I stand in my position of defense and I'm looking at him and he's looking at me. And I'm just waiting to see what he's going to do. Uh, Next thing you know, he just walks, takes two steps, because he sees that I'm ready to 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 engage with him. 
and he stops on the elevator and he holds the elevator and turns around and he looks at me and he says, you have a nice day, sir. And I say, yeah, you too. So he walks out. So I walk up behind him and he takes off. And as I'm walking, this other uh, security guard comes and just bumps on me, hits me hard. And he looks at me and I just go to the exit sign and walked out of the, the facility. It's kind of like they know who you are. They know where you've been. So they send these people. You Like I said, this, to, honestly, they still think I'm part of the government in some kind of way. No, it's it's just why I am, but they know where I've been, so they know what I'm capable of. So they continue to follow. Uh, that's one of the things that happened to me, happened to me at the hospital. There was one time where you know I was seeing a neurologist, and uh, I told him that if he could change the medicines that I was taking because it wasn't working, and he was just joking around and moving his fingers all crazy, and he was telling me. How many fingers do you see? And he, you know, he was moving so fast, like moving his fingers back and forth that I couldn't see. You know, and I was in a daze because of the medicines. You know, that I had I've been getting seizures, so he told me to do a finger test. As I grabbed his fingers, I squeezed, and he said, "You can do better than that." And then I don't remember nothing. So when I came to, all I remember is he was a tall guy, like six five. All I remember is when I woke, woke up from whatever happened to me, he's down on his knees and I could see his face by my chest and his fingers are bent all the way back. And he's telling me, shouting, let me go, let me go. And I'm still trying to wake up with whatever happened to me. And I ask him, uh, are you going to help me? And he's yes, yes, yes. And I let go of his fingers. And he jumped on the on the on his on his seat and he started typing and he, he changed my medicines to something else. Wow. Did you uh break his fingers in that process? I'm not sure, brother. <laughs> wow. I, I thought I thought that I was that, that they were gonna call security on me for happening, but it was beyond my control. No, I was telling him that the, I was having seizures, and I believe I had a seizure in his fing- on his fingers. Uh, but he changed my medicines to to a different med that's been working pretty good for me now, which is called Avitrosum. The medicines that, that were given me, the side effects was suicide, suicidal medicines. Tell you, the the the, the government sees soldiers as numbers that were expendable, so. They'll try to take you out while you're in the military and while you're out of the military. Out of the military, they'll try to take you out of the medicines. Side effects, suicidal. I had, they were giving me so many suicidal medicines that I wasn't even taking them. They tried to take me, go through the uh, PTSD to give me some medicines that have suicidal tendencies. I didn't, I didn't go to that. You know, I stay away from all that. Uh, so I found my, my own peace, you know, through a love foundation. No, play, placing God first. You know, of course, I'm always going to remember what is, has happened through my in my life that I'm able to share the stories uh, to you, to you, and to whoever listens to this podcast. And this is true events, and true stories that that I'm sharing with y'all. 
And I, I don't fear the people of my past that I faced that I had to fight. I don't fear the drill sergeants. I don't feel the enemy that I faced in Operation Storm. I don't fear, fear the, the DDN or the, the Nephilim or anything demonic. I don't fear none of that because I have a law foundation and I know God is with me to looking out for me. He's been looking out for me all these years. Do you feel, and this is coming into our last couple of questions, yes. do you feel that the entire population, the world population, we're on the precipice of a great change and that this darkness is surrounding us right now? Do you feel like somehow we're going to beat it? Well, brother, you've seen, if you paid attention to the TV, you've seen the things that I speak of in effect, full effect. All those people uh, burning buildings, looting. That's the thing that I witnessed when I was out in the combat. So the bigger question is, when I went back to Germany, that's what I witnessed. Just like what happened during the elections and the racial profiling or the you know, when people were standing up because somebody died, like, uh, because of race, that's exactly what I witnessed in Germany when we came back from, from war. So the bigger question is, have they given the population the shots illegally that they don't know what's in their system? That's the bigger question. And I believe that that's, that's what's exactly what they've done. I do too, um, because there's nothing else that lends to any sense outside of an explanation that we have been manipulated. Think about, you know, I, I know you think about this more than anybody, is that all of these people that were triggered for public shootings, all of it, none of this existed before. What's the explanation for it? Well, I'll tell you what it is. Fear, fear mongering. Fear mongering of the, the media that does what the the fear mongering the media does, uh the fear mongering of the COVID of uh, coronavirus, fear fear mongering of, of, of racism. What, what what loves fear, brother? We all know the answer to this. What uses fear to to the, the most lethal universal soldier in the world that's been here for it since the beginning of time? What uses fear? anger and hatred to its advantage. And I I'm more sure you know the answer to this. Sure. It's, well, it's evil, you know. Exactly. Evil. They're setting, up the, setting, up, setting us up for failure by using that so they could have the spiritual opening because you got to remember this demonic beings, whether it's demons, Lucifer, or the ne disembodied Nephilim, they just want a host to attack. So, if they can send that message and the thing they're doing against God, if they, can, if they can use the spiritual openings, right, to attack a host and destroy the host, that's exactly what they're setting us up for. There's many that are going to falter in that nature, and it's already been happening. It's an unseen spiritual war happening right now, brother. And I believe there's people in power that took sides of where they, they want to be already. And like I said, if you pay close attention, that's what they're using is because they're affiliated with this, uh, should I say, 
the source that's been here for a long time. They're affiliated, wow. they're part of that. And I believe that as well. Um, well, I obviously, I'm so grateful that you came here to tell this story. And um, I hope you come back. You know, there, there's much more to tell. I know you have many more experiences to talk about with me. If, oh, you know, uh, I'll if just share, I, I shared a little bit, brother. I have so many other experiences and I, I really appreciate you inviting me to be on your show. Oh, thank uh, you. And I know that I know that the audience is is going to truly appreciate your story, and um, definitely want to have you back. And I usually ask every guest this same question. Um, so, after this physical life is over, and you retain your soul and consciousness, uh, and there's no right or wrong answer to this, what will you take with you? Uh I've crossed over already once, or should I say, numerous times. But God has blessed me spiritually to come back into this world. Uh, when we live here, we leave the flesh behind. The body stays behind. The spirit continues to cross over. But I believe since I got blessed to come back to my body, even though I was going to experience pain and suffering of the conditions I already had, what got me back, there's something I always say, I always maintain a love foundation. What got me back was the love I had for my son because I was asked the question. They told me, how did you get here so far? You shouldn't be here. You know, I could see the universe, I could see the world, and I could see the stairway, the, the stairs, the golden stairs, and I could see a bright light and a figure up there. On the bright light, it was too bright that I couldn't see. But the voice sounded like thunder and like anything dealing with Mother Nature. It sounded real loud. And he told me, what do you want? I said, well, I want to be with my son. And he told me, then what are you doing here? So I was able to come back. I was blessed to come back to my body that was battered already. I was able to come back and given a second chance to come back into my body. So basically what I'm saying is you don't take nothing that's here in this world with you. What you take is what you what you prepare yourself for. If you prepare yourself with the Love Foundation, uh, forgiveness, which is part of love, and you have no ties holding you back of any kind of negativity, you'll be able to ascend into the kingdom of heaven. And that's what a lot of these unseen forces through the fear-mongering and everything that's being set in place is for many lives or people to fail to make it into the kingdom of heaven. But there is a kingdom of heaven because I witnessed it. And I believe I'm being spiritually targeted now because you could say I'm a messenger. For those that, that, that think that there's no hope, that there's not a, a, a heaven, I'm here to tell you, I'm, I'm that messenger to tell you there is a kingdom of heaven. There is a God. And there is an unseen spiritual war that's happening right now. Uh, because I see it. And that's why I place the pictures and the videos to try to bring awareness for people to get spiritual ready. I'm trying to awaken as many brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters as possible to, to free them from any kind of bondage. That's what I'm, my main mission is here right now. That's my answer, brother. 
Welcome back to Off to the Witch. I'm your host, Christopher Garitano, and I want to thank you for joining the conversation tonight. We live in a world where most of us desire and are capable of a harmonious existence. But within the shadows, there lies an inexplicable evil. We have our will, our strength, and each other. Stay strong out there and remain aware of the coming storm. Until next time, try to enjoy the daylight. <laughs>